You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. Our passage this morning is going to be out of Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some Bibles available, and that passage can be found on page 949. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to conform the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify you for his glory, might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all the joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You guys can have a seat. So this week, um, our missionaries are the McLeod family. They work with a crew out of Boston, uh, and they have some specific needs that they'd, they'd like prayer for. So if you join me in prayer. Father God, we lift up the McLeod family and the ministry of crew, uh, specifically in Boston. As uh, the semester uh, gets ready to kick off, we we ask that you help them to share the the good news that can only be found in you. We ask that you give them a a boldness, but at the same time a gentleness and spirit to present the the good news uh, and also to raise up uh, other students and other leaders that can continue on uh, sharing the hope that can only be found in you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. I uh, came across a a quote uh, about hope by one of the leading researchers on hope. His name is Shane Lopez, Dr. Shane Lopez. He said this, hope isn't just an emotion, it's an essential life tool. Uh, It has been documented and shown that those who are in college who have hope tend to have higher GPAs. Uh, Athletes who have hope tend to perform better. Uh, Senior citizens who have hope tend to live longer, statistically speaking, uh, hope. And it feels like that is the one thing our world so desperately needs right now. I don't know about you, but it's so easy to, to, to just through the course of the week to be filled with anxiety and uh, despair and, and grief. You know, a lot has happened this week in Wisconsin and in the Gulf with, uh, with the hurricane, just all kinds of stuff. I came across the quote by Vadi Bachman, 
who I really appreciate, and I, he's a great theologian. He, I came across this quote. I posted it on Meadowbrook's Facebook page. It says this, We are not seeing terrible things in our culture because we vote the wrong way. We are seeing terrible things in our culture because men love darkness rather than light. And that's the reality. That's the reality we find ourselves in. Uh, there's a book I read some time ago by Cornelius Plankina titled Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Bravery of Sin. Uh, outside of the Bible, it's the best treatment on sin that I've, that I've read. And I, I actually have the words of the quote on the screen so that you can follow along. But I want to read something he wrote that I just think is timely and relevant. He, wrote, he said this, uh, The biggest biblical idea about sin expressed in a riot of images and terms is that sin is an anomaly and an, an intruder, a notorious gate crasher. Sin does not belong in God's world, but somehow it has gotten in. In fact, sin has dug in, and like a tick, burrows deeper when we try to remove it. The stubborn and persistent feature of human sin can make it look as if it has a life of its own, as if it were an independent power or even a kind of person. The reason is that sin is a parasite, an uninvited guest that keeps tapping its host for sustenance. Nothing about sin is its own. All its power, persistence, and plausibility are stolen goods. Sin is not really an entity, but a spoiler of entities. Not an organism, but a leech on organisms. Sin does not build shalom, that is, peace. It vandalizes it. In a metaphysical perspective, evil offers, not a true, evil, uh, evil offers no true alternative to good. Good is original, independent, and constructive. Evil is derivative, dependent, and destructive. To be successful, evil needs what it hijacks from goodness. And we're seeing that in our world. We're seeing that in our world. I, I've titled, and I explained why I've, I've done this, but I've titled each, or I've included in the title of each sermon the phrase, in a COVID-19 world, because um, you know, our world is dead. It's, it's upside down. It's spiritually dead. Uh, what we see in our world, I mean, it, it feels like sin... <laughs> Like a, you know, like a tick that burrows uh, deeper and deeper every time you try to remove it. And here's the reality. N no politician, no form of legislation can remove the tick. Right? Only Jesus can. Only the gospel can. That is the hope of the nations. The only hope for people to change is through God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sin is more than a tick. It's a parasite, right? Whose only hope of survival is to tap into what is good, rob it of life, and, and produce something that is perverted and ugly. And we're seeing this happen before our very eyes. Like I, I, a while back, I said, I, I, I shared what, kind of my heart with you about the phrase, Black Lives Matter. I said that phrase, there's nothing wrong with that phrase, and it's not helpful for Christians to respond every time we hear it, well, all lives matter. But what we've seen in the course of weeks and months is that phrase hijacked and perverted into something that has resulted in the destruction of cities and businesses and lives. And so th this is the world we live in, and it shouldn't be this way. Like, 
seven bullets in the back of a black man. I'm not making a, a statement about, about whether it, it was justified or not. I'm just saying seven bullets in the back of a black man should not happen. Just as equally, uh, uh, protesters who, who, who shout that no justice, no peace, should not burn down buildings and destroy, and destroy you know, lives. Like, that shouldn't happen in our world. But we live in a world that's under a curse. And it just it doesn't seem to get any better. Our world is not the way it should be. Our world is not the way it should be. And, and it is so easy to be overwhelmed by anxiety, despair, and grief was we sit by and we watch what's happening. And the, and, and, and the hard thing is it's just like when you, you're watching it and, and you're powerless, it feels like you're powerless to do anything about it, right? I mean, we've even seen that. We've even seen that. Uh, you know, on the news, if you're watching it still. <laughs> so the Apostle Paul answers three questions in Romans 15. And I'll... I'll state those three questions, and then we'll just take, take our time and answer, see how Paul answers those three questions, um, one question at a time. But the three questions are, are this, is this. Uh, how are we to live differently? How are we to live differently? The second question, why should we live differently? Like, why should we live differently? And then thirdly, what assurance do we have for living differently? Well, why does it matter? Why does it matter that we live differently? And so how are we to live differently? So the very first thing Paul says in chapter 15, in the, verse, in the first verse, he says this. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So he's picking up on what he said earlier in chapter 14. He's just kind of unpacking that a little, a little more. And, and like if you were here last week, I shared with you that, that the weak and the strong are not like, I don't believe that he's describing new Christians versus uh, mature Christians. What he's doing here is he's describing Christians whose conscience are bothered by certain things that the Bible does not forbid. So in the context, in the context of Romans, you know, there, there, were, there was a whole pagan system where animals were sacrificed to different gods, and then the meat there that was left over would be sold on the market at a discounted price. And some Christians were like, yay, discounted uh, steak. And other Christians were like, I don't want anything to do with that because of where it came from. And Paul is saying here, listen, you who are streak, you, strong, you, have, you who are strong have an obligation, you have an obligation to build up the one who is weak, right? not tear them down. Not respond with, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Get with it. You know, that was, I talked a lot about that last week. The role of the strong who know that, um, whose conscience allows them to participate in things that the Bible doesn't forbid, is to build up those whose conscience tells them, don't do it. Like in chapter 14, Paul said, if your conscience tells you don't do it, to do it is to sin against God. If the word uh, build up, you know, like that's the, that's Paul says, he says, your role is to build, to build up your, your brothers and sisters in Christ. That word is used also in, um, or to bear up. 
another one's burdens is used in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This, we need to be strong or spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of what? What's that word? Just to say it all together. Gentleness. We've we got to learn that, the art of gentleness when it comes to uh, encouraging uh, one another and holding each other accountable and even addressing sin you know, in the lives of our brothers and sisters. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. But bear, that's the word, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill what? The law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love. Good. You were paying attention last week. That one person. I don't know, know where you are. You can have a cookie tonight when you come to the thing. I'm joking. Um, love. It's a, that's the law of Christ. Jesus said, when he was asked, what, are the two, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything about you. And then the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so Paul says, look, uh, how, how we treat one another uh, speaks volumes to, to the world. Like, like, this should be the one place where the world is able to look and see what love looks like. The church. When Jesus prayed for his church before he was betrayed and then handed over to Pontius Pilate to be uh, executed and to die on a cross, he prayed a prayer. He prayed, Holy Father, keep them. Well, who? Those who were following him, his disciples and those who believed in him. He said, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And then he goes on. He says, but I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you know who he was praying for in, when he prayed that prayer? You and me. Every generation of Christian would come after the disciples he prayed for, that they would be one. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that what? So that the world may what? Believe that you have sent me. The mo I, said, I said this last week, I'll say it again. The most powerful apologetic, the most uh, effective evangelistic tool that you can use to share the gospel with the world begins with the way we treat one another and how we love one another. Because Jesus said, by the way that we are unified and we love one another, the world will know. The world will know that we belong to him. And here's what will happen. They will either hate us, they'll hate us because of it, or they'll see us and they'll say, you know what, I want that. I'm missing that in my life. I want that. Where can I get it? The way we can be one is by each of us looking for ways to build each other up instead of tear one another down. And, um, and the world is watching. And if you're wondering, you know, well, what, what model is there that I can you know, learn from? Well, it's the life of Jesus. Here, here's, here's how you can learn how to treat not just one another, but how you can respond to the world around you. Read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just read through them. And what you will discover is how to treat those around you. Just watch how Jesus, or read through, as you read through that, just learn how Jesus treated those around him. As you read through the Gospels, note how he treated his disciples. 
even when they said dumb stuff. Note how he treated them. Note how he interacted with the sick. Watch how he touched those who everybody else was afraid to touch, like lepers, when he healed them. Or the tears of sorrow that he shed when he was before his friend's grave, Lazarus, and, and he wept tears on behalf of all those who were around him. Uh, note that just before he raised Lazarus from the grave and told Lazarus to come forth. Or how about the plea that he had to, to the Father of, of forgiveness for those who were around the cross, those who were responsible for, for thrusting and, uh, nails into his hands and to his feet, uh, those who were responsible for, for placing a crown of thorns, lodging just a, a crown, shoving a crown of thorns on his, on his skull as he hung on the cross naked before a jeering crowd who mocked him. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If you want to learn how to respond to a jacked-up COVID-19 world, read through the Gospels and learn from Jesus. The Holy Scriptures tell us that this same mindset Jesus had, we're also to have. In Philippians chapter 2, we're told that. Let's read this together, ready? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." That's the mindset we're supposed to have. Last week, I had two points in my sermon, and, and one of them was that humility, godly humility, gospel-centered humility will free you up to love your neighbor in the way that we're called to love our neighbors and to love each other. What's godly humility? Recognizing that what Jesus Christ did on the cross, you, like, you didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that. We deserve the cross. He didn't. That the mercy and grace that was made available to you and to me, that Jesus purchased with his own blood, we didn't earn that. He did it out of love. God put his son on the cross out of love. If we truly understand who we are in light of who God is, our response should be humility. And when it comes to being wronged, by those around us, or when we turn on the TV or on Facebook or whatever it is and we see what's going on in our world, instead of responding in hate, our response should be not only one of pity, but a, a desire to see people know and come to be known by, by the God of all creation, to experience the same grace and mercy that we experienced. So Paul says in verse 3 here of Romans 15, he says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. Like he, the, the, like, he didn't deserve that. We did. So that's why, we, <laughs> that's how we ought to live. But why? Why should we live differently? And so that's the next question Paul answers, and he gives us, he gives us three reasons why. 
Uh, in verse 3, we already uh, saw that, that Jesus died in our place for our sins. He died in our place for our sins. Secondly, um, the testimony of human history is that although mankind is inherently sinful and we are faithless, God is faithful and is moving and working throughout history for the good of his people. And third, the third reason, it's in verses 7 and 8 of Romans 15. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ, if you're looking in your Bible, as Christ what? Welcomed you. Did we deserve to be welcomed? Mm-mm. But he did it. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. He, he humbled himself. He died in our place on a cross. And all three reasons Paul gives us to live differently rest on this simple fact that Jesus, Jesus is our Redeemer. He paid for our salvation. You know, think about what it cost you and what it cost God. Like, it cost you nothing, right? But what did it cost God? His own Son. Like, Jesus, the Holy One, took on flesh by becoming a man in our place, born of a virgin, and not once did he ever sin. Not once. Jesus, the highly exalted one before whom every knee will bow one day in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, became like us for the purpose of dying for us. And it was for you and it was for me that Jesus, as the prophet Isaiah foretold, hundreds of years before his birth said, was pierced for our what? Our transgressions. He was what? Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus did that. And, and listen, like not once did Jesus shrink back from doing that. Not once did he shrink back from interacting with sin-cursed human beings who did not deserve the grace and mercy of God. Not once. Not once did he do that. I mean, the people that he interacted with, tax collectors who were, who, who were considered to be traitors by the Hebrew people. You want to know why? Because they helped the Roman Empire become successful by fleecing the Hebrew people. They hated the tax collectors. And prostitutes. I mean, Jesus hung out with tax collectors uh, and prostitutes who were considered irreversibly dirty by the religious elite. And those who were far from God were considered beyond redemption. These were the people Jesus rubbed shoulders with and ate dinner with and, and loved on. Not, not as a way of sugarcoating their sin, but for the purpose of transforming them. The reputation Jesus had was that he, the religious leaders said he was a drunkard who hung out with tax collectors. He was a glutton you know, who also hung out with, with prostitutes. In his book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, I, I, I share that with you because I think you should read it. It's a really good book. Uh, the staff are reading it with, with me right now. Or this is the second time I'm reading through it. He said something that was profound at the beginning of the book, and I just want to share it with you, and the words will be on the screen. He said, we project. So he's talking about how we, we tend to project on Jesus or on God our own understanding of what mercy and grace should look like. Or, or how the holy should interact with the unholy. So he said, we project onto Jesus our skewed instincts about how the world works. 
Human nature dictates that the wealthier a person, the more they tend to look down on the poor. The more beautiful a person, the more they are put off by the ugly. And without realizing what we are doing, we quietly assume that one so high and exalted has corresponding difficulty drawing near to the despicable and unclean. Sure, Jesus comes close to us, we agree, but he holds his nose. I mean, how many times when you have sinned, you've felt disgusted or have felt that God is disgusted with you? You know, that's one of the reasons why people, you know, after sinning, they feel like they can never come back to the church because they're, they're overwhelmed with, with guilt, thinking that God is absolutely horrified and disgusted by, the, by them. We tend to impose how we respond to such things on Jesus. So I was a custodian for th- about three years at a church, pretty large church, and uh, well, I was in seminary. And uh, the one place I hated cleaning was the nursery. You, you know why? Because of the diapers. I, I just, I'm being honest with you. I know we're promoting children's church, but like, I, I, I promise you, if your child is like, like, if it's a life or death situation, I'll change your di- child's diaper. I will. But I, like, I just, I don't know. So, so when, I would, when, I, when I would go into the church building to change you know, or to clean, I just, I just dreaded emptying the diapers into, into the trash can and taking it out to the trash. I mean, when I had to do that, the gloves would go on and the mask would go on or I would turn my face and I would try to do this, this deed as quickly as possible by, by getting rid of the dirty diapers. I mean, dirty diapers to me and, and, and the stench of you know, something living that is now dead that's been in the trash can under the hot sun, they smell the same to me, right? Like, you, you ever smell that? Like, yeah, so horrible. Um, or, you know, for me... Like any time my, my children, when they were younger, and Seth is still at the age, when they're vomiting, you, my response is, I try to be a good father, pat their back, turn my head this way, and like not breathe in the smell, right? We tend to think Jesus responds the, way, the same way. Like in dealing with our sin, he's, he's got to put on the mask, he's got to put on the gloves, and, and when he's dealing with us, he's turning his head, patting us on the back. It's like, I paid for it, but the, you know, this kind of disgust, this disgusts me. Ortland says something later in his book that, that's so helpful. He says, This high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numb sufferers. Such embrace, such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. If you doubt that, why, then ask yourself, why did he go to the cross? So why should we live differently? Because Christ welcomed you and he welcomed me. That's why. We're, we who are dead in our sins are now made alive in God because of faith in Jesus. And, and, and as a result, we are now called sons and daughters of the God of all creation. That's why we should live differently. And what assurance do we have for living differently? Well, for starters, it is God, and Paul, Paul lists these characteristics in this chapter for us. It is God who is the God of endurance, encouragement, and hope. He's the God of endurance because he pursued you, and he pursued me. We've learned that from Romans. 
When we were far off, God pursued us. When we were enemies of God, he made us his friend through Jesus. Like, before the foundation of the world, he, he had his heart and his mind set on you and on me. If you believe in Jesus, it's evidence of that. That's what we're told in Romans. And, and encouragement, he's the God of encouragement because you are no longer, no longer a child of the devil. You are a son of the God of all creation. You are a daughter of the God of all creation. And here's the reality that we learn from Romans. He sees you not as a disgrace, not as something he's disgusted by. He sees you as his treasure, as his treasure. And we know that nothing will change that because of what Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, that there is therefore no what? condemnation. It should be like, you should have this memorized now, right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the, he's the God of encouragement, and he is the God of hope. You know why? Because even though things are not what they ought to be, they're not going to stay that way. They're not going to stay this way. Like, he is going to make all things new. We know that because of the fact that there is still an empty tomb and God has said so. I mean, it, it just if, you, if you're wondering about that, if you're doubting that, if you're overwhelmed with anxiety or grief over what is happening in our world, and we should be grieving what's, over what's happening in our world, but, but we should not be consumed by it. Just remember what Romans chapter 8 says about us. And we know, it's on the screen, and we know that for those who love God, all things, what? All things work together for good. For good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? What? glorified. We're not there yet. He's in the process of making this a reality. You know when this happens? This happens when there's no more death, when there's, when there's no more curse, when there is a, uh, uh, this happens after a resurrection that's coming. We're told that it's coming. We're promised that that's coming. And so what, what is Paul's response? Let's read this together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And he's not talking about a new job or a nicer car. He's talking about your soul and what's coming. That's why we can bank on Jesus' words when he said, listen, Peter, listen, John, and listen, James, that some of you they will kill. They're going to kill you, Peter. They're going to crucify you upside down before a watching crowd. They're going to humiliate you. And John, they're going to boil your feet in oil, and there's going to come a point in your life, even as an old man, you're going, to be, have to, you're going to have to be carried from town to town and city to city. That's coming. And, and some of you, they're going to skin alive, but not a hair on your head will perish. We of all people should be the most hopeful people on planet Earth. And, and, and God says, look, he's the God of hope because he promises that, that things are not going to stay this way. 
There's coming a day when, when there will be, <laughs> CNN will have nothing to do because there will be nothing to report. Or Fox News, or Facebook, or whatever. He is going to wipe away every tear one day. You want to know why? Because Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. I mean, we, in verse 12, Paul reminds us of that. He says, the root of Jesse. You know who he's talking about there? Jesus. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul's desire here, even though he wasn't sure how much, how much longer he was going to live, he wasn't sure. He was still planning about engaging God's mission, even though it was dangerous. His plan was to go to Spain, to bring the gospel to Spain. He never made it. He wound up in a maritime prison where he was shackled in a basement and awaiting his execution where he was eventually beheaded. He was, he was, the sword came, came down on his neck and he died. He died. He said, that's not the way things ought to be, but that's not the way things are going to stay. Like, God's going to make all things new. The root of Jesse will come. He's coming. And when he comes, every president, every dictator, every emperor, every king, you know what they're going to do? They're going to wail. <laughs> they're going to weep. Why? Because their power that was lent to them will be stripped from them. Why? Because not just any ordinary king is coming. The king of who? Kings. And the lord of who? Lords is coming. He's coming. And brothers and sisters, I, I can't wait. Jesus is coming to destroy the parasite. He's coming to dislodge the tick. And that's why we should live differently. When the king comes to take back what belongs to him, not only will the kings and rulers and of all the earth weep, but Jesus will bring a peace that we've never known before. The last time we knew this kind of peace that he's bringing is the peace that Adam and Eve knew in the garden before the fall. That's when the serpent will experience the full crushing of his head. That's when we will experience what it means to be glorified fully and completely. That's when we will be able to finally say we are saved when we experience that day. And here's, here's the encouraging thing. If, like, when he comes back, we are promised that every instrument that is used to kill maim and destroy will be turned into and redeemed into instruments that bring forth life. Even the swastika. Even the white hood. You know, even, even the phrase that I think I feel has been abused, Black Lives Matter will be redeemed. You know how I know that? 
because of what we're promised in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4? Let's read this together. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I say this every, I think just about every funeral of those whose faith rested in Jesus who, who died. I tell their family that um, there's coming a day when the word goodbye will no longer be in the human vocabulary. Like Jesus is coming to make all things new. And when he does, the tears that stain our eyes will be wiped away. And uh, the way things are supposed to be, will be. You want to know why? You want to know why rioters loot? Why, um, why we see what's happening in our world happen right before our eyes? You, you, you know why? Because for them, those without hope, who don't know Jesus, this is as good as it gets. This side of eternity is as good as it gets. But for those whose hope is in Jesus, this is as bad as it gets. Like for, I've said this before, the person who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't believe in Jesus, that this life is the closest that he or she will ever come to experiencing heaven. But for the Christian, in this life, it's the closest that we'll ever come to experiencing hell. I, had a, I have a friend who, who you know, we've just we've lost contact, but who's diagnosed with cancer. I shared this, I think, a couple weeks ago. But he was diagnosed with cancer. The doctors gave him less than a year to live. He spoke at one of the youth retreats um, that we put on back in Pennsylvania when I was involved with youth ministry. He is about my age. And his blog post, he said, you know, um, yeah, I, I hope God will heal me. He's capable of healing me. I hope, I hope the doctors are able to, to be able to prolong my life. But if not, you know, my prayer is this. My prayer is that I'll just lean more into the grace of God. The one who promises us that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? And for us, may that compel us to not only live differently but, and to love one another as we ought to love one another, but to go into our world with the news that they so desperately need to hear because it is the gospel that has the power to change lives, not laws, not politicians, not the next president, the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives and what you promise us. You're not disgusted by your people. You, you've redeemed us. You are transforming us. You are molding us. You are shaping us more and more into the image that, of, of your son. And uh, for that, we're thankful. God, I can't wait for the day when Jesus comes and you wipe away every tear from our eyes and he makes all things new and there will be no more curse. But until then, God, 
we want to be faithful. Until then, we want to be courageous for your namesake, for your glory, and for the good of Cheyenne and every other city and community that you have called us to reach. And for those who are either watching the live stream or maybe in this room who do not know you, God, I pray that they'll place their faith and trust in your son, that it's simple, that there is salvation found in no one else but the name of Jesus, and that all who call upon him will be saved. That your word says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God, that you raised your son from the dead, that that person will be saved. That your son himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody can be reconciled to the Father or come to the Father except by me. And if there's anyone in this room or on the live stream, watching through the live stream, who has not yet placed their faith and trust in your son, who has not yet known the, the forgiveness that is made freely available to them through your son, God, that they would do that before this day is over. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.